Good morning. We're in class number two of Systematic Theology, part two. Order of Salvation, part two. And uh, let me have a word of prayer and then we'll uh, review what we looked at last week. Father, we're thankful that You have chosen us and called us to salvation. You have imparted to us spiritual life when we were spiritually dead and that You called us to faith and repentance and it could not have happened without Your grace. It was all a gift so that we cannot boast. And so we praise You for Your grace and salvation, the salvation that You give to us and promise to continue in us and complete in us all the way until the end. May we live in light of this truth that you are, you are in it all and that we owe all of our, our uh, blessings and, and the joys that we have to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will complete it or continue it until the day of Jesus Christ or perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ that God doesn't quit when he determines to save a person he makes sure that it happens that it is completed and last week we looked at the first five parts of salvation and um anyone have any idea what what those were you don't have to give them to me in order necessarily but do you remember any of them that we talked about last week Sanctification, no, that's for this week. Okay, justification, that was, I think, number four. Okay, election, that was number one. That was the very first thing. God has to choose us before, and we spent a lot of time looking at that. Following that, God calls us. That's the internal uh, call that God um, does in our lives, that He he gives us the gospel through the external hearing of it, but then internally he says, "Come to me," and and we are um, we are called to come there. And then regeneration. Remember that impartation of spiritual life to the what? To the spiritually dead. Okay, so that's regeneration. So God chose us. He called us with the hearing the gospel. Then instantaneously there is regeneration where the Spirit imparts life to us. And following that, here comes our response, which really is of God too, and that is faith and repentance. We respond with faith and repentance, and, and that's called conversion. And then the final thing uh, that Stacy mentioned there, justification. That is, those who have faith will be justified. Okay? They will be, that is, they will be counted as righteous. So you think of it as a judge in a courtroom. Okay? Those, those are the first five. Now, are there any questions or comments as you've maybe thought about those over this last week? Maybe maybe uh, didn't quite sit well or, or thought about some other verses? All right. All right, well, let's move on. If you think of some, um, then just uh, we'll, we'll try to address them as they come. Okay, this week we'll look at the, the second half or the last half of the order of salvation. Adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and glorification. So let's begin with this first one, which is... 
There you go. There's a review for you. All right. Adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and glorification. Let's uh, begin with adoption. We, we want to think about this idea, and, and um, this probably is not a foreign concept to you. It's where a believer who was once a stranger to God enters into God's family and becomes a child of God. Okay, so a believer enters into the family of God and enjoys all the privileges that are there as being called a child. It is it comes after we express faith in God. Okay, let me show you this in John chapter one. John chapter one. Verse twelve. The believer wants a stranger to God an enemy of God, really, now enters into God's family and becomes a child and enjoys all the blessings that there are being a child of God. John 1.12, would someone read that for us? But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in Him. Okay, so in verse 11, He went unto His own, Jesus did, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him... Okay, as many as expressed their faith in Him, to them He gave the right or the privilege to be adopted, to be called children of God, to, to enjoy the blessings that there are of being part of God's family. And the only way this can happen is first that God has to pardon their sin. He has to, he has to, um, he has to remove the object of scorn or 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 judgment that they have that that they have against God or, or that He has against them, I should say. And this is what we desire most as Christians. It's a relationship. Um, I mean does this does this uh, truth, this aspect of salvation affect you? Does it change you? Does it does it cause you to to think about God's grace? We, we live in an age where relationships are broken, where divorce is widespread, and where children are often estranged from their parents and, uh, and don't even know their siblings many times. Does it mean something to you that you have a Heavenly Father who cares for you and who has put you into His family? So, we've seen these different doctrines that come in Scripture. Justification shows God as a judge, that He says, I'm going to declare you as as just. Sanctification we're going to look at here in a second. It, it declares God as our Master, that He is changing us, that, that we must obey Him, that we have now this new Master. Here, adoption shows God as our Father, and He has adopted us into His family, that we can now have an intimate relationship with like you had with your parents growing up or, or that you have with your children right now. All right, so let's look at, at the doctrine of adoption here in, in the Scriptures and then we'll see how we can apply it to our lives. All right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Same verse we looked at, same two verses we looked at last week. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. The first thing that adoption includes is the Father's love from all eternity. 
the Father's love from all eternity. Now, if you've gone through the adoption process uh, of adopting a child of your own, you know that there's a lot of work and tedious uh, paperwork and lots of things involved in order to get the child to finally be called yours. And so when you think about that, you can think about what great lengths God went to to adopt you into His family. Okay, He didn't have to sign paperwork or, or necessarily, but, but He did have to, to have His Son slaughtered for you. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Would someone read those for us? All right, and he goes on to say in verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. God gets the praise for this. So here's, here's why God chose you. God chose you so that He could make you a part of His family. Do you see that in verse 5? He predestined or chose us to adopt us as His children through Jesus Christ, that Christ had to die. In order for God's love to be expressed to you, His Son had to die. So the Father's love from all eternity. Adoption also includes redemption from past enslavement. Turn back a few pages to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Um, Actually, it's verse 4. Start with verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of as sons. Okay, so for, in order for you to be adopted, God had to choose you, and He also had to redeem you, because you were enslaved to your own sin. Your master was Satan. And so adoption includes... Uh, Christ's death on the cross. It, it required Christ's death on the cross. Third, adoption includes a present status and a way of life. In Romans 8, uh, it says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That we have an ongoing re- relationship with God's Spirit. We have a status. I mean, if if you have been adopted, um, if your parents adopted you, then you know what that means. You know that you now have a status of of being their children. That you have a special belonging to them. You get to enjoy all the benefits of being their children and 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 uh, and receive their inheritance as well, right? And that's the same thing we have as as Christians. We have a new status, a new way of life. We have all these promises that now have been given to us because we're part of God's family. Number four, adoption includes future expectation of glory. As a child of God, we have received the spirit of adoption and we're waiting this final adoption. There's this final consummation that where our fallen mortal body will be redeemed from its corruption and brought to a state of glory. We'll talk about this. This will be the fifth one that we look at today, glorifications. Okay, so this this sense that we are adopted is 
is true, we are adopted, but there's also a sense when we will be finally and fully adopted into God's family, where we will be like Him in the sense that we will be free from sin. Alright, so we have the Father's love, redeeming from past enslavement, a status and a future expectation of glory. So now let's think about application. What does this mean for us? How, how should this doctrine affect us? Okay, and it should affect us in several ways. Number one, if we're adopted into God's family, then we should live like one of God's family, like a member of God's family. We should obey our Father. We, we should also love our brothers and sisters who also are adopted. First John is, is full of commands that talk about this. That we have a special relationship with those who are adopted into God's family. That there is a love that is required of us uh, to the people within our church more so than unbelievers. More so than your, your own flesh and blood. Okay? Uh, we have a special relationship. John says in First John chapter two that we should, uh, or chapter four, he says that we should give, especially to those who are are, are our brothers, or our sisters. That we should live like members of God's family if we have been adopted, and we should also encourage one another. Uh, Makes sense that that we would want to encourage one another to say, hey, "Listen, this is our Father that we're sinning against. We we should show our love to Him. We need to to grow in our faith together." Secondly, our adoption should show us that we have a close fellowship with the Father, and and that means that we can enjoy the privileges of His love and a compassion. That that when we look at God and what He has given to us, we should see it as uh, uh, an abundance of good gifts. Okay, that that our Father actually loves us and He is on our side, that He is for us. And and if we don't see that, then perhaps we don't understand what what our Father wants the most in us. Okay, He doesn't want us to be rich necessarily with lots of material wealth. He doesn't want us to be perfect perfectly healthy necessarily. You know what God wants for us? We're going to get to this here in just a second, but God wants our growth in godliness. And sometimes that means poverty. Sometimes that means sickness. Sometimes that means great trials. But our Father is a good Father and He gives us good gifts. And He lavishes those gifts upon us and we should see those. And it also means that we have a close Fellowship with the Father. Uh, I said that already. Um, I skipped this one here. We must recognize that it's the highest privilege ever. Sorry about that. Finally, it provides us um, with an incredible intimacy with our Savior. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. But the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Okay, he's not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to call you his sister. Uh, he, he's not ashamed to call you his sister. Why? Because he has suffered like you. He has suffered for you. 
Alright, so we have this great love that's shown to us by being adopted into God's family. Alright, any thoughts on that? Any questions on adoption? Alright, well, if we're adopted into God's family, um, we should be like our Father. We should take on some of the characteristics of our Father. Right? And that's what we're going to look at next. Sanctification. Sanctification. This is the pursuit of holiness through the elimination of sin and growth in godliness. The most simplest form, if you want to just write these last three words, that would be sanctification. Growth in godliness. It includes the elimination of sin, but, but this is sanctification. That You should recognize that when you come to Christ, when any person comes to faith in Christ, they don't automatically become perfectly sanctified, right? Now, there should be some sins that are shed immediately because we are believing and repenting, but we haven't reached a state of perfection. I haven't reached a state of perfection. Uh, you haven't either. And so, since we're not completely conformed to the image of Christ, that's going to happen, certainly. Since we're not there, then we have to go through this process from the time that we were once dead, estranged from God, hating God, enemies of God before salvation. Then we get saved. And to, between that time and the time when we will be conformed to the image of Christ, there's a change that's going on. What Paul calls in Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he uses the Greek word metamorphosis, basically. It's, it's our, the word we get metamorphosis from. Okay. The, the idea of a transformation that, that's happening right now, it's, it's not always pretty. When you look at the cocoon, it's not a, necessarily a pretty picture, but one day we will be fully transformed. We not, may not understand all what's going on. Hey, all these gooey materials in there and, and, and the crustiness sometimes and, and, and the frustration and, and the long period of wait. But ultimately, that will produce something beautiful at the end. And that is us being conformed into the image of Christ. That is sanctification. And that's something that goes on and on and on. That goes on throughout our life. We will never reach a state of perfection where we say, you know what? Finally, God, I'm going to give you my all. And now, I'm going to put all that sin away. Well, we can say that, but that's not ultimately going to happen until we are glorified. Sanctification. Um, so, let me give you four statements. You have them on your handout that we can say biblically about sanctification. Uh, Dr. McCune here defines it as being separated from sin and set apart to God. Okay, Growth and godliness. Number one, sanctification begins at regeneration. Okay, what was regeneration again? The impartation of spiritual what? Spiritual life to the spiritually dead. This is where the Spirit imparted life into us. We needed this. This was a unilateral work, a one-sided work of the Spirit. We were not involved in regeneration. Once that begins, now there's this process of sanctification. Obviously, faith and repentance quickly follow because that's the, the response. But then sanctification begins as well. And actually, what you could uh, that uh, that legal action called justification. Another phrase for that is initial 
sanctification. There are actually three steps to sanctification. Okay, we're, we're not going to put these on here or get into this too, de- too much in depth. But there's initial sanctification. That's when we're first justified, counted as righteous. Then there's ongoing sanctification or what's known as progressive. Remember, this is, that's that metamorphosis process. And then there is what's known as final sanctification. Final sanctification is when we're finally transformed into the image of Christ. That's number 10 on our list or number 5 today. That is glorification. Okay, so there's a, a sense in which we are sanctified, right? That we are set apart from the world when we're saved, right? We're set apart from sin to God. There's a sense in which that's true, but there's also a sense in which we are being sanctified, right? That right now we are growing, we should be growing in godliness and in our understanding of God and His truth. And there's also a sense in which we will be sanctified. That's glorification over here. And we will finally be set apart completely from sin and to God. Does that make sense? Three aspects of sanctification. So, it begins at regeneration. Initial sanctification. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue in sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Okay, now I just said a little while ago that we don't reach a state of perfection when we're sanctified, when we're initially sanctified. But this verse says, no one who is born of God will go on sinning. What is John talking about? Well, if you look at the rest of 1 John there, you'll see that what he's talking about is practicing sin. Okay, The idea there is that, that if we continue practicing sin, then it's, we're not born of God. We never have been saved because true believers don't go on practicing sin. Uh, I'll talk about what that means here in just a second. All right. Begins the regeneration. It's a two-part process. Secondly, it's a two-part process. Colossians one uh, talks about putting on, or putting off, and putting on. It's kind of like uh, changing the oil in your car. Okay, you get rid of the old oil. That's a good thing. But if you just get rid of the old oil, how good would that be for your car? Probably not too good. Okay. We need to do both. We need to get rid of the old oil and put in new oil. Now, um, i, I got to be careful about telling stories about my brothers because these things are recorded and uh, tend to come back to me. But, but I won't tell you. I have five brothers and I won't tell you which one it is. He decided at one point that uh, he would try to drive his car as long as he could without changing the oil. He thought, you know what? What good does the oil really do? Uh, or what good does clean oil really do? Maybe this is just one of the ploys from the car companies to get more money or from the mechanic. You know, just get more money or, or, or whatever. I'm going to go as long as I can. you have any idea what would happen to a car that doesn't have its oil changed? Okay, so he went 3,000 miles. He went 6,000 miles. He went 24,000 miles. He went... Uh, over a year without changing his oil. And uh, what do you think happened to his car? (laughs) Surprisingly, the engine seized up. And um, (laughs) 
Maybe that was it. Uh, you know, I think sometimes we try to do that with our Christian lives. That, um, that you know, we're already saved. So what, what good is it to really to grow at all? To change, get rid of the sin and replace it with righteousness? What good is it? I'm already saved. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. God eternally secures those whom He saves. So I don't have to grow. I can go as long as I want and let's just see what happens. And what I'm here to tell you today, and we're going to get into this with our next doctrine that we'll look at, is if you don't change the oil ever, you will have shown that you never were a child of God. If you never grow in godliness, you will have shown that you never got saved in the first place. Alright, so it's a two-part process. It is putting off the old and putting on the new. And this is something we have to be consciously doing. This doesn't automatically happen. Like we can just kind of just float through life as a Christian and we just get zapped into sanctification. The Spirit is working, yes. But we consciously have to think about it. Okay, this is a sin against my Father. I'm going to stop doing that based on what the, He has told me in the Scriptures. And this is what I ought to put on in its place. Number three. Never completed in this lifetime. I already talked about this. Never completed in this lifetime. If we think that we are without sin, 1 John 1.8, we deceive our, ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why I know John's not talking about sinless perfection in this lifetime. He's talking about practicing sin. If we go on practicing sin, we show that we're not born of God. So, it, it's something that, that happens at glorification. And that means that that our victory of sin is... Our, our final victory over sin in this lifetime is not going to happen. Okay, so here's what 1 Corinthians 10.12 says. If you think you've gotten to a place, Dr. Combs mentioned this on Wednesday night, if you think you've gotten to a place where you have licked it, I've got that sin under control, it's never going to bother me again. If you think you're standing firm, take heed that you don't fall. Okay. The problem with sin, the, the difficulty with sin is not just that we're getting bombarded from the outside, but we have sin inside of us. We are plagued with sin, even as Christians. This is what John Murray says, and this is kind of small, so I'll, I'll try to read it for you here. There must be a constant and increasing appreciation that though sin still remains, it does not have the mastery. There's a total difference between, think about this for a second, surviving sin and reigning sin. Think about that difference for a second. Surviving sin, there's a few that remain and they, they keep bothering you. And then there's another difference between reigning sin, that I must obey it, that it is my master, I follow it. It's one thing for sin to live in us, and it does, I would say, it is another for us to live in sin. It's one thing for the enemy to occupy the capital. It's another for his defeated hosts 
to harass the garrisons of the kingdom. You see what kind of analogy he's drawing there? It's one thing for sin to occupy the capital or for Satan to occupy the capital of our lives, to to own us, to be our stronghold. It's another thing for his his armies to attack our garrisons. Okay, our, our armies. Then he goes on to say it's of paramount concern for the Christian that he should know that sin does not have the dominion over him. Paul recognized that this does not happen in this lifetime. That is, final sanctification doesn't happen in this lifetime. Sinless perfection. He said He said in Philippians 3.12, not that I have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold. This is at the end of his life. He's in prison. He's about to die. And he says, not that I have been made perfect. I haven't been. But I'm still pressing on to take hold of Jesus Christ who already took hold of me. That's what we do as Christians. We continue on in the faith. And then number four, God is the one who causes it. Recognize that it is God who is at work in you. Um, Would you turn to Philippians chapter 2, a couple pages towards the back of your Bible again. Philippians chapter 2. And uh, I, I... refer to these verses often, especially in this class, These when we talk about salvation. Um, in fact, I think I brought them up last week. Philippians chapter 2. But, but what I want you to see here, we are responsible to sanctify ourselves, but recognize that God is the one who's sanctifying us. Okay, there, There's this balance that happens there. There's this tension in a way that God is working in us and we're working to, to to do it as well. Look at verse 12, Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation, or we could say, be sanctified with fear and trembling. Sanctify yourself. This is what Paul's saying. Okay, sounds like it's it's all me. And if I let go, I'm really going to, 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 uh, to lose it here. But notice verse 13. For when we're working to sanctify ourselves, verse 13, it's God that's working in us. Both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Even when we are sanctified, when we grow, when we actively think about what we're doing spiritually, we can't even take the credit for it there. Because God is the one who's doing the work in us. So what we see is that from beginning to end, from initial sanctification, progressive sanctification, final sanctification, glorification, that, that God is the one who's, who's doing it. God's at work in us. Any questions on our growth in godliness? All right. Check to see how many miles you have left before you need to change your oil when you head home today. All right. Next is perseverance. If God is sanctifying us, if He's changing us, those whom He elected and regenerated and justified and adopted, then here's the question that we have to ask. Can a believer fall from a justified state? If God has counted them as righteous, can they fall? Turn to um, John chapter 6 with me. Can a believer fall? That's the question we want to ask. 
We've already asked it. So that's the question we want to answer. John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40. For I have come down from heaven, Jesus says, not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me. That of all He has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise Him up on the last day. All right, let me give you a definition here. I'll talk about this first here in just a second. Perseverance is is the uh the doctrine that says that all true Christians, all true Christians will continue in faith all the way till the end. All true Christians will continue in the faith all the way to the end. All right. So, That means that all who are truly born again will persevere. This is what Jesus says. Of all the ones, God, all the ones you have given to me, I will lose a few. Is that what it says there? What does it say? I lose nothing, verse 39. None. Not not one of them. Of all the ones that you give, the ones that you chose and called and justified and adopted, I'm not going to lose one of them. They're all going to continue on to the end. And Jesus makes this emphatic statement in verse 39 that He will lose none. It doesn't say, I hope, he, he, I hope that I lose none. Or if all goes well, if they participate with me, then I'll lose none. If they hang in there, no. He says, I will lose. Now, this is a promise. If God has called you, He will continue the work in you till the end. John 10. I quote this often. 27-29. through 29, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no man will be able to pluck them out of My hand. As my Father which gave them to me, He's greater than all. And no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Two times He says that. They can't take them away. If they wanted to get out, they couldn't get out. And the truth is, they, they don't want to. When God chooses to save someone, when He calls a person, when He justifies them, they will be saved finally and fully. Secondly, This means that only those who persevere to the end have truly been born again. Look uh, two chapters back. Chapter 8, verse 31. Only those who persevere to the end have truly been saved. John 8.31. Would someone read that for us? So Jesus was saying to all the Jews who had believed them, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Okay. Continue in my word. That's the idea of persevering all the way till the end. If you do that, then that means that you truly are my disciples. 
Now, he didn't say, because you persevere, you truly are. That is, you brought about your own salvation. No. That's a response of what God had already done. But here's how we can see it from our perspective. If a person continued in the faith all the way till the end, then they will have shown themselves to truly be child, children of God. Now, maybe you knew a person who was clearly a Christian and they fell away. They clearly made a profession of faith and they lived a life of God. Turn to Mark chapter 4. And you say, but, but I know they were a Christian, but they fell away. So that, how can this true, be true? How can, how can only those who persevere be born again? Mark chapter 4 is the parable of the soils. And I think this is the best way to think about this. Okay, and that leads us to our next point. That is, those who finally fall away may give many external signs of conversion initially. Those who finally fall away may give external... It may look like they sprout up. Look at chapter 4 of Mark. The disciples say, I don't understand what you're talking about after he gives the parable in verses 1 through 8. And Jesus says, verse 13, Do you not understand this parable? How we understand all the parables? The sower sows the Word. There are, there are the ones who are beside the road where the Word is sown, and when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes it away. Okay, so for these, they show no signs of life. There's, no, there's nothing that takes root. There's nothing that, that sprouts up here in the first one. That's the one that's the seed's thrown by the side of the road and the birds come and, and eat it up. Remember that part of the, the, the parable. Jesus says that's where Satan doesn't even allow the Word to, take any, uh, to, to get inside them at all. Verse 15. Um, verse 16. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. When they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. Hey, that's this right here. External signs of conversion. I come to you, Jesus. I, I come to you. I want to trust in you. That's an external sign of a conversion. But here's the thing. Notice what Jesus says in verse 17. But they have no firm root in themselves. They're only temporary. They, when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately they fall away. They show themselves when they fall away, they show themselves they truly were never saved. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 18, And other ones are the ones whom seed was sown among the thorns, and these are the ones who heard the Word, okay, and they shown signs of life, but, but the cares of this world, the, the deceitfulness of riches, they got in the way, and they choked out the Word, verse 19, and it becomes unfruitful. Those who fall away, finally, may initially give signs of life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, when people come to Him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I not do all these things in Your name? What will Jesus say to them? I never knew You. Right? He didn't say, you know, I did know you at one time, but you turned from me. He didn't say, depart from me, I no longer knew you. I no longer know you. He didn't say that. 
You had signs of life, but I never knew you. There is no such thing as losing salvation. A person cannot lose their salvation. John 6, John 10. If they show signs of life and they finally fall away, they show that they never really took any root. Okay? The real test is, is are they bearing fruit? And that's what happens with this last one, verse 20. And those who are, those are the ones on whom seed was shown in the good soil and they hear the Word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. So, if you see someone or have seen someone who professed to be a Christian and they fell away, it wasn't that they lost their salvation. First John 2 says they went out from us. He's not talking about you know, leaving the church. He's talking about leaving the faith. They went out from us, but they really did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. That's the idea of perseverance. Alright, let me get to these next two and I'll see if you have any questions. These next two, death and glorification. Death is one step closer to where we want to be ultimately, where we're, we are glorified. We are finally and fully changed. Death is that completion of sanctification and the experience of believers. Uh, it, it still awaits our, our, our bodies being joined to our souls. But um, death is, is what takes place uh, at the end of the life of the believer. And it's not a consequence. Uh, it, it's not a punishment, I should say. It's not a punishment on us. Remember, God has already ta- or Christ has already taken all of our punishment upon Himself at the cross. It's already been paid for. There's no more condemnation. You're not being condemned when you die. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is judgment. No, he says to die is, is gain. It's actually a good thing. So if I'm left here to, to, to work and do God's work here on the earth now, that's great. But you know what's even better? For me to die... The the death for believers is not as scary as it is for unbelievers because Christ has already destroyed death with His death. And so death no longer has a sting, 1 Corinthians 15. And when we die, we are with the Lord. So will we ever be with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. So that's a good thing. Precious in the sight of God is the death of His holy ones, His saints. Right? Alright, then, okay, so now what happens is our bodies, when we die, our bodies are left here on the earth. So we're not actually fully, completely restored to the place where God wants us to be. Our bodies are still left here on the earth while our souls are now with Christ. So there has to be something else that takes place. One final thing. When does this take place for the New Testament believer? That is, for the church age believer. When does this process of glorification, when our bodies are joined together with our souls? Any idea? At the rapture, when when Christ resurrects our bodies from the grave. What a sight that will be. And He joins our bodies back to our souls so that we... And so there's a sense in which our glorified bodies have a resemblance of our current bodies. 
that, that you're going to recognize me, I'm going to be able to recognize you in heaven because uh, you will have some, you will bear some resemblance. You, remember when Jesus was, rec- the reason I say that is because when Jesus had his resurrected body, the people recognized him, right? They recognized this as it being Jesus. So he, he bore a resemblance to his, his body uh, while he was on earth. And so this is the final step, um, the final consummation of our salvation. Or our bodies are joined with our souls. Now, there's another resurrection that will take place just before the millennium. And uh, I think that's what Daniel 12 is talking about. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting covenant. Okay, so every single believer of all time will eventually be glorified. We will, we will get the first fruits of that. Okay, obviously, Christ was the first fruit. He, he was resurrected first. But, but we are guaranteed to, to uh, have our bodies resurrected as well. This is a verse that many nurseries hang, at least the first part of many nurseries hang in there on their wall there. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Okay, but in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. We'll be changed. Our bodies will no longer bear the sins that we, that we deal with now, that we struggle with. So if Christ has started a work in you, you can be sure that He will complete it all the way till the end. Our responsibility is to continually be sanctified. Make sure we're changing the oil, removing the old and putting in the new.